0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Hello, this is Money Talks, and I'm Simon Long, the finance editor. Coming up this week, we'll be looking at the possibility of a post-Brexit exodus from London. The French will say things like, well, you know, there are only two global economic
2: cities in Europe, London or Paris.
1: Is Zimbabwe heading for another
0: currency crisis? Most Zimbabweans who are now calling it the bola instead of the dollar are
1: beginning to think of it as monopoly money. And as all play and no work make an executive jet an expensive
3: toy. One of the most remarkable trends of this financial crisis is that although the amount of travel on corporate jets for business has been falling, CEOs are increasingly taking the corporate jet on holiday.
1: In the wake of Britain's Brexit vote, hardly a week goes by without rumours of a big financial institution planning to move some jobs out of the city of London. A number of cities in the Eurozone seem eager to welcome them. Paris, Luxembourg, Frankfurt, Amsterdam, Dublin, the list goes on. Patrick Lane, our banking editor, has been investigating their sales pitches. Patrick joins me now. Patrick, first of all, Roughly, what sort of order of magnitude are we talking about? How many jobs?
2: Well, that's a good question, Simon. You hear reports and talk about tens of thousands, but it's, it's it's really not clear yet because the number will depend on exactly what the outcome of the negotiation is between Britain and the European Union. Banks can't afford to wait for that, so they have to be prepared for it. They would like to move as few as possible but they really don't know how many. There are business options being drawn up. If you look at what the cities themselves are talking about, well, in Frankfurt, they reckon on 10,000, which to me sounds surprisingly small in a way. Paris, talk about 10,000 jobs directly. Maybe another 20,000 might follow in ancillary services. And of course, rival cities can't both get the same jobs. So it's really not clear yet, but banks just need to get prepared.
1: And which of these cities is pursuing this most aggressively? Which is the pushiest?
2: Oh, Paris, I think it's fair to say. They came out with an advertising campaign Immediately after the Brexit vote. In fact, they had two campaigns prepared, one for Remain and one for Leave. And the poster that didn't get used said something like, You've made one good decision, now make another, come to Paris. So they're wanting to promote themselves as a business centre anyway, regardless of Brexit. But of course, Brexit gives them a better opportunity. Uh, the French will say things like, Well, you know, there are only two global economic cities in Europe. London or Paris. French officials will also say things like, when was the last time you, you took your partner to Frankfurt for the weekend? So they're they're presenting Paris not just as a big, important city with a lot of banks already there and fund managers and so forth, which of course they have, but also as a nicer place to live than Frankfurt. And so they're much more aggressive. You listen to the others, they're, they're much quieter about knocking each other.
1: And less explicit in being Directly targeting their their rivals, as it were, because from what you were saying, it sounds as if it won't be one city. As if as if the the jobs might be spread across Europe.
2: Oh yeah, that's definitely true. They, they will be spread elsewhere. Of course, we don't, as we said earlier, we don't know what the size of the prize might be, and you can see that different institutions will end up doing different things. So HSBC, for example, has already said that it will move maybe a 1,000 jobs to Paris, but it it bought a French bank several years ago. So it already has that bank, which has a licence. It's established. It's the obvious thing to do. If you look at other banks, I mean, for example, UBS, which has also said that it might move uh, something like a fifth of its London investment banking workforce, which would be again around a 1,000 people outside London. Well, Last year, it established a bank focused mainly on wealth management in Frankfurt. So although it hasn't actually said anything, you would think that Frankfurt might be a more natural place to be. And also different financial centres have different specialities. So Luxembourg has built itself uh, a very strong reputation in, uh, in asset management. Different places have different uh, have different strengths too.
1: I mean, as you imply, there are going to be an awful lot of considerations playing in the in the bank's mind, so language, laws like labour laws, lifestyle, property prices. Is there any sense yet which of these factors are likely to weigh most heavily in the bank's minds?
2: It's going to be regulation that's going to drive it, I think. So in the European Union, financial companies have things called passports, So meaning that from any country in the EU, you can sell to any other. And once Britain leaves the EU, then you won't have a passport if you're based in Britain. So you have to have a base somewhere else. So I think the key thing is exactly what you will have to have in your EU hub in terms of personnel, senior personnel, capital, and so on and so forth. I think that's that's the main thing. Then there will be considerations such as schools, you know, if you're going to have to put people there with their families, then is, is there the infrastructure, for want of a better word, to support a good family life? I think one consideration that people have stressed quite a lot, which probably isn't quite so important, is space. Because banks, some of them have vacant space already. All these places have got plenty of office space. And if you look at the likely numbers, suppose it's low tens of thousands. And some people think it may be less than that. Well, in the past few years, according to Cushman and Wakefield, which is a property company, Something like 34,000, maybe a bit more, people work in middle office jobs in Central and Eastern Europe. And there's another 5,000 in Ireland. There's another... Getting off of twenty thousand have been moved or are being moved out of London into British provincial cities. So the sorts of numbers you're looking at moving out of London may well not be quite as much as that. So it's probably regulation first, then what sort of a city is it, and then only third things like uh, things like office space.
1: So fi- finally, one-word answer, simple, self-interested question: Where will be the best city in Europe to present Money Talks from in 2025? Oh, I think we'll still be here, don't you, Simon? I certainly hope so. Patrick Lane, banking editor, thank you very much. Thanks. And if you have any thoughts on Rivals to London, let us know. We're on Twitter at Economist Radio, and you can also reach us via email to radio at So, now we head to Zimbabwe. In 2008, hyperinflation there destroyed the Zimbabwean dollar, leaving the country reliant on US dollars. They stopped printing their newly worthless sovereign currency altogether. In December, eight years on from the crisis... Zimbabwe's central bank dipped its toe back into the currency waters by introducing a pseudo-currency, the bond note. But it's an experiment that's already run into trouble. Our Africa editor, Jonathan Rosenthal, joins me now to explain. First of all, Jonathan, what is the bond note?
0: Well, that's that's the million the million-dollar question.
1: Uh, according to the
0: government, it is the same as a US dollar. It's meant to be trading one for one for the US dollar, and it is meant to be backed. By U.S. dollars held in a vault somewhere, so, so in theory, you know, it is just a, another version of, of, of the real dollar. So it's like a currency board. It is like a currency board, although most Zimbabweans, who are now calling it the uh, the bollar instead of the dollar, are beginning to think of it as, as as monopoly money. Although this monopoly version of the dollar should be exchangeable for real ones, in practice, it's not. So what went wrong? Nobody trusts it. And there's, there's partly it's because of history. They know that when the previous time the government ran printing presses, it led to hyperinflation. So there's already a, a sort of inherent distrust of the government. The second is that these these dollars are not proving convertible. So they're being used for domestic transactions. I go into your shop. you know, I hand you a, a, a boller note. In theory, if you've imported the tin of tomatoes that I've just bought, you need to be able to go to your bank and say, I want a real dollar to then pay for my imports. What's happening is the bank is saying, we're terribly sorry, although you've got a bank balance
1: that says you've notionally got dollars in the bank, in fact, we haven't got any real dollars to give you. It's quite funny in a way, isn't it, talking about monopoly money and all that, but presumably the consequences on the ground are are devastating. What does it mean for ordinary Zimbabweans? Are they going hungry? The consequences really are devastating. To take a step back, these notes were introduced in part
0: to deal with a currency crisis. The Zimbabwean government had been spending a lot more money than it had been getting in. In the old days when that happened, it just printed the money. It can't print the money anymore, or it couldn't when it was using dollars. So what it was doing is it was looting bank accounts, essentially. So you would have dollars in the bank, you'd go to the bank to try to draw them, and the bank would say, we're terribly sorry, we don't have the dollars to issue. That was when the government brought in these these bond notes saying, it's fine, we'll print our own version of the, of the dollars, give them to the banks, they can issue them to you, and they're still worth the same. That that just really is not happening anymore.
1: So are we back to 2008? Is it, is it as bad as the hyperinflation episode then?
0: It's not as bad as that. What, what you've got is, is an incredible cash shortage in the country. These notes have not alleviated that. So the cash shortage is meaning that the economy is shrinking. The IMF now thinks it's going to contract by about two and a half percent this year. So real sort of joblessness, real uh, squeeze on the economy. You're also getting inflation ticking back in. That the prices of imports are going up. That's really leading to massive hardship. Unemployment is very high. Hunger is high. Large parts of Zimbabwe have suffered from a drought and a reliance on on uh, international food aid. So the Zimbabwean people are really uh, sort of you know struggling.
1: Does the government have any idea to, what to do about this?
0: Do you? Unfortunately, that there there are sort of some fairly good economic plans. There are some. Elements of the government that are that are quite reformist and understand what has to happen. A lot of that will involve, for a start, getting the government not to spend more money than it collects. You know, close that deficit. You know, the IMF has had a staff monitoring program that's giving advice. And fortunately, every time the finance minister tries to do something to get the the problems in hand, he uh, is overruled by his president, Robert Mugabe, the ninety two year old who has ruled Zimbabwe since nineteen eighty. So, for instance, Robert Mugabe, after previous elections in two thousand and thirteen, vastly increased the size of the civil service, handing out jobs to reward areas that had voted for him. When his finance minister came in and said, we, you know, we really have to cut our spending. And the first thing we're going to do is cut the annual 13th check, the bonus check, which is traditionally paid to civil servants. Mr. Mugabe then stood up in parliament a few days later and said, I have uh, magnanimously decreed that everyone will get their 13th check. So all of those efforts to, to get the economy back on track are just being undercut by the president. So
1: in the end, it's down to politics. Jonathan Rosenthal, Africa editor, thank you very much. Thank you. Now, finally, we turn to the skies, where businesses around the world are starting to question the efficiency of private jets. They were once a must-have accessory for top-flight CEOs. But in the private jet market, will it soon be a case of Boeing, Boeing, gone? Sorry about that. More seriously, are firms that allow CEOs the use of business jets for leisure, letting their investors down, our industry correspondent Charles reed has been delving into the private jet market and he's with me now. Charles, first of all, how big a decline are we talking about?
3: Well, it's since the financial crisis, it's been quite a big decline. The number of planes sold has fallen by about a third since the financial crisis. And although it's been flat for the last few years, the industry hopes every year that there's going to be a revival and it basically hasn't happened for about seven or eight years.
1: And is that because CEOs are simply travelling less?
3: Partly CEOs are travelling less. I mean, this is partly driven by technology. For example, video calling technology is getting better, so it's not necessary for CEOs to fly to web meetings. Eagle Eyes investors are also spotting CEOs who are using their private jets too much and are putting pressures on companies to cut this form of expenditure.
1: Are they used purely for business purposes or do CEOs also use them for holidays, their families?
3: Well, I mean, originally business corporate jets were simply used for business. In the 50s and 60s, when the first corporate jets appeared they were sold on that basis, they would get you to your meetings quicker. But one of the most remarkable trends since the financial crisis is that although the amount of travel on corporate jets for business has been falling, CEOs are increasingly taking the corporate jet on holiday. This is partly because this is one extra perk that CEOs now want in addition to their salaries. But other firms want this for security reasons. They think that there is an increasing risk on public transport of something happening to their executives, for example, a, a terrorist attack or losing important or confidential documents, or you could have your rivals, particularly international rivals, hacking into your laptop or stealing your papers. And therefore, some American companies mandate that their CEOs have to fly on the corporate jet on holiday. For example, this is the case at Boeing, an aerospace giant, and Halliburton, an oil services company. And to show you how expensive this is, um, the CEO of Boeing has his own Boeing 737, which, when in use, albeit without as much legroom as, as on that, that private jet, by Ryanair can seat 189 people.
1: But are they right that it's safer for their CEOs to travel on, on uh, private jets rather than on commercial airliners?
3: It's safer in that you're less likely to have your baggage stolen, you're less likely to have somebody, uh, your neighbour, sitting in your lap for half the flight. It's perhaps even uh, safer uh, in terms of cyber security. But in, in terms of plane crashes, private jets are far more dangerous. Since the 1980s, there have been five times more private plane crashes in America than there have been commercial commercial airliners. Crashes, and indeed, dying in plane crashes, is one of the leading causes of death for CEOs alongside heart attacks. So this can be a very risky business.
1: Charles Reid, industry correspondent, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week's Money Talks. In London, this is The Economist.
0: Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right,